my victory was as we were completing the marathon in Athens, we had just run across the peninsula in Greece, came down the streets of the city of Athens, across the plaza, and as we were crossing the plaza, entering into the Olympic, what's the word I want? Stadium. We could hear the music coming from that Olympic stadium. And as I ran through the gate, down the track, across the finish line, I had tears coming down my face. Welcome to the Serve Love Lift podcast. I'm Tiffany Garvin. Years ago on a quiet beach in Hawaii, I felt the weight of the pain and struggles we all face in this world and how much we need each other. Soon after, this movement was born to serve, love, and lift. I believe that we are meant to serve the world with our unique gifts, love ourselves and others, and lift each other up to live with joy. This podcast is here to help you heal your heart and your life and empower you on your path to becoming the best version of yourself. I invite you to listen carefully and jot down notes that come to mind, whether they come from me or from your own heart. Then, Share this episode with three people who you feel could use it today. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get going. This podcast has given me a lot of wonderful opportunities to interview amazing people and to not only share things that are meaningful to me and that I hope will help you, but also learn from people that I've had on. And today is no exception. We have a guest that has lived a remarkable life and anything from from the craziness of youth to the brilliance of 40 years in religious education to rodeo clowning and army and civil air patrol. I mean, we really can go on and on and I look forward to his memoirs as they're published in the next few months, uh, the volumes of the crazy experiences that you cannot write into a movie. Nobody would believe it. So I'm excited to introduce one of the best men in the world, my dad, Dean Thompson. You expect me to follow that up with anything? I do. I have full confidence in you. (laughs) Well, first of all, you're my hero. You're the one that I look to for motivation for things that I've tried. And in fact, I went back and got my second black belt after watching you because you motivated me. And in fact, I was intimidated (laughs) by your tenacity as you were working to overcome your uh, fibromyalgia. And I, as I watched that, I was thinking, wow. And then you came back with your black belt in the Kempo Jiu-Jitsu, and I thought, it's been, well, 1965 since I got my first black belt. With Ed Parker, with Ed, Master Parker. Mr. Parker. So I thought, okay, they've got uh, several excellent schools here in Sacramento. So I looked around to determine which one had the philosophy 
and the quality of instructors that I wanted to work with. Because it makes a difference. Yeah, oh, it makes a difference. And so I went in and didn't say anything about my past martial arts experience. <laughs> I said, I'll start with a scratch with a white belt with the rest of the class. And sometimes the instructors were wondering, where, where did this guy come up with that, <laughs> being a white belt? And finally, when I ran out of money for the tuition, I said, this is my last class. And so after the class, the director of the program invited me into the office and said, we know that uh, you said that because of finances you couldn't continue this, but you are too much of the spree de corps of our institution here. Will you accept a grant? A, we'll give you a tuition grant if you'll continue coming. And I, I just about cried because I love the, <laughs> love the martial arts. Yeah. But to have it access to me at no cost. So I continued on, and before long, I was I had one daughter, uh, her husband, and their daughter as students, and I was teaching. Can I use their name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was teaching for Kovars in Sacramento, and I, I taught for several years. But then as you get into your 80s, your skin starts to act like rice paper, <laughs> and I would just make a strike and my karate uniform, the hem, would lacerate my skin. Oh, lame. And we don't like blood on the mats. <laughs> so I retired from instructing martial arts. But uh, I, I still, just like being a pilot, when I see an airplane or hear an airplane, yeah. I'll go out to see which one it is, right, see if I guessed it right. Right, right. And uh, I watch martial arts movies. I, uh, every once in a while when I go buy Kovars because I have some equipment that I'm either donating to them or making access for their students to buy, I will wear my uh, Ed Parker black belt and, yes. and geese. And that's impressive. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, I love that. Well, Anne, you, you mentioned a handful of things in there that we're going to address a little bit more. You mentioned my tenacity. Well, that tenacity came from somewhere. That came from your stories and your experiences when you were a child, when you were four or five years old and you had Perthes disease. Five, six, and seven in a body cast. And doctors said you'd never walk again. Without crutches or a back brace. And then when you prove them wrong with that, they said, well, you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 40 with arthritis, right? Mm -hmm. And that, again, they were wrong. Yeah, and my last marathon was, right. <laughs> was in 1991. Right, at at 63, 60, no. In the early 60s, huh? Early 60s. So that tenacity to overcome was in my blood. And not only did you overcome the Perthes disease as a young child, but then when you were a teenager, you got polio, mm -hmm. you and your brother. But that didn't stop you either. It made me mad. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I threw a fit. I, 
I went in my door, I went in my room and slammed the door. And I, I didn't ever cuss, but I let the Lord know that I was upset. Yeah. <laughs> but I came out of there determined. I said, okay, you're not going to whip me. Just stand back and I'll show you. Yeah. And so you and your brother Lynn worked <clears throat> out in the out on the farm. We went out and developed a project that we worked every day developing muscles till we were exhausted. And when I went back to the polio clinic in December of that year, I was wearing my letter jacket from having earned my football letter that fall. Right. And the doctor said, uh, that's impossible. We must have misdiagnosed because you couldn't overcome what you had. And that makes me mad. I know you are good with it. You're okay with it because people can't offend you. But that would make me really <laughs> mad. <laughs> I mean, especially coming from my experience where I had all these diagnoses and then doctors telling me, well, it's in your head, even though it was obviously not. And there are thousands, if not millions of people in the world struggling with some kind of chronic illness. And to have somebody tell you it's not real is pretty awful. But then to overcome it and to stand as victor against impossible odds and then have somebody say, well, it wasn't real. That victory isn't really real. I love how you can just own it, whether they believe it or not. My victory was, as we were completing the marathon in Athens, we had just run across the peninsula in Greece, came down the streets of the city of Athens, across the plaza, and as we were crossing the plaza, entering into the Olympic, what's the word I want? Stadium. We could hear the music coming from that Olympic stadium. And as I ran through the gate, down the track, across the finish line, I had tears coming down my face. And my running partner talks about the photo that was taken as we came across the finish line. He says, here's a picture of Dean waving his hat to the non-existent crowd. <laughs> I didn't need a crowd. No. I had waved my hat because I had just accomplished something that I was so excited and so thrilled and emotionally overcome because that was in October and it was in that previous December that they told me, all right, hang your running shoes up. You're finished. You've got arthritis in your hips. Hang them up. Right. But again, you said, well, well maybe, I, maybe not. Well, what happened was I, I hung them up. I, so I went into the, the, the gym, and I worked out for an hour every morning, hating every minute of it, because people were breathing it out, and I was breathing it in. Mm. And that went on for about six weeks. And then this running partner I was telling you about, who was a physician, he came and invited me to come out and jog with him. So I said, you forget I'm handicapped. He said, well, how do you feel? I said, great. <laughs> he said, well, and here's the prime medical advice that I would share <laughs> because I remember him saying that and I 
thought for a minute, and then it dawned on me, yeah, if it ain't busted, don't fix it. <laughs> so we went out and ran 800 miles prior to the marathon in Athens. That's amazing. So incredible. I love that picture. Let's see if I can find it and, and post it with this podcast episode. So I love, I love the tenacity because you are an inspiration to me and I feel honored that I was in some way an inspiration back. So that's really fun. One of the things that you love to talk about is gifts and purpose and wanting to inspire people to discover and develop their gifts so that they can fulfill their purpose. What makes you so passionate about that? Well, I'm going to take a stride here into a religious room. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a book called The Doctrine and Covenants. In section 46, verses 11 and 12, it says, Every person is given a gift by the power of the Spirit. So that's a guarantee. Yeah. And that, then it says that everyone may be profited thereby. That means that you were placed in my environment for my benefit. Mm -hmm. And I have hoped over the years that I have been in environment to help others because I know that I have responsibility. Because if I've been given a gift, I better develop it. And so when I've talked to youth groups, I will say your objective in your life is to find out what God wants you to do and then set about to do it because that's why you're here. I love that. And you've been able to do that in a myriad of ways over your lifetime from football in high school and the trampoline team in college. And I always wanted to be a pilot. I had model airplanes hanging from the ceiling of my room when I was six years old. <laughs> my mother couldn't walk into my room standing up straight. She had to duck <laughs> underneath all of my airplanes. And it wasn't until 1965, and I won't bore you with the circumstances, that set the stage that I had the opportunity to learn to fly. Yeah. But before you become a pilot and take the pilot's test, you have to take a ground school. I couldn't afford the ground school. Mm. So I went to the library, got the books, studied, passed the test, and then went on with my pilot's license. Wait, let's not skip over that. Because that story, how you did that, is actually really valuable and a really good example to people. And are you thinking about the time aerobatics? You have to prove to the people who own an airplane that you can fly it before you can rent it. Right. And so I thought, all right, I can't afford the 10 hours to go out and practice in that airplane. Oh, that's So what I will do is I go into the airplane, took a picture. Well, I had a, a picture of the cockpit. And then I got a manual and I went home, read the manual on how to fly that airplane, sat down in a chair with a picture of that cockpit and envisioned starting it up, taxing it out, taking it off, going through maneuvers, coming back, landing, 
and shutting it down while I was sitting, flying it in my front room. Right. <laughs> and it reminds me of our son who loved racing. Yeah. He would be watching a race on television and he was sitting there in his driving fire suit watching. The... <laughs> and so as I went to the organization that had the airplane to rent, uh, I said, uh, what do you want me to accomplish to show you that I can fly your airplane? And they said, we'd like you to fly 10 hours. And I said, now, do you want me to fly 10 hours or just demonstrate to you that I can fly it? I said, well, if you can, if you can demonstrate, we're perfectly happy with that. So I got in the plane with the instructor and he started to say this. I said, no, no, you just stop me if I'm wrong. So I, I did the pre-flight, started the plane up, taxied it out, took off, went through all the maneuvers that the instructor wanted me to do, came back, landed, and shut it down. And I said, now, how much more do we need to do? He said, you're fine. You qualified for the airplane. <laughs> I said, how many hours do you think I have in this airplane? He says, oh, I don't know, 15, 20. I said, I've got 45 minutes that we just did. And he was flabbergasted. So he said, how did you do that? So I told him the envisioning process. Yeah. He introduced that into his ground school I and saved the it. students thousands of dollars because yeah. they would sit there under his direction and fly the chairs <laughs> and then get ready to go out. They could fly the airplane because they had already gone through all of the procedures. I love that. That's so powerful. And it seems like you've kind of done that through your life in different ways. You've had a remarkably full life. I mean, just kind of highlighting some of these, you've already mentioned several, but rodeo clowning to get through college, paying your way through college, and a lieutenant in the army, and a captain in the Civil Air Patrol, and a lieutenant in the Chico Police Force, doing a lot of search and rescue, and the marathons, and, and the black belt, the second black belt that you earned, all of these things have a remarkable drive behind them. A What it feels like is a vision for the fullest life you could possibly create. Well, I don't like to see grass growing in the trail. Right. <laughs> There's no grass growing in your trail. <laughs> and so, for instance, I had the opportunity to go with my sweetheart to Israel in 1976. Yes. And as we went on that trip... I fell in love with Israel. Yeah. I knew that I would never come back, but all the while I was there, during those three weeks, I was taking notes on things I was going to do when I came back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, projecting and envisioning and creating it. And then I had the opportunity of going on a, a tour. They call it the Veterans Tour. You guys have already been there once. We'll take you back again, but this time, You'll walk the roads, you'll climb the mountains that are in the Bible. Yeah. We slept on top of Mount Sinai. Right. The director of that tour watched me and he said, you're a natural, you need to direct tours. So I came home and said, all right. And so I said, anybody want to go to Israel with me? And 20 people said, sure, we'll go. <laughs> so that was my first tour. And then I directed... What year? What year was the first oh, tour goodness. you led? 
early 80s, I don't okay, recall. Okay. One of the sad things in my Israel directing career is I haven't kept a roster, a cumulative roster mm. of the probably thousands of people that wow. have been with me to Israel. Wow. Because each time I take a trip, uh, anywhere from 15 to 40 people, and that adds up over the years. Yeah. And, but I fell in love with Israel, and so as I would come back, people would, here, oh, you've been to Israel? Would you come talk to our meeting, to mm. our fireside, to our group? And so I was giving these talks around, and they said, could we go with you? And, <laughs> and so pretty soon, the word was out, and all I had to do is put the tour together because people were coming. We want to go with you. And they were having so much fun with how much fun I was having that I came home, and within the next year, we had another group put together because they wanted to do the things, same things that other guys had done. Amazing. I, I love Israel. Yeah. Uh, there have been a couple of times when we were flying over the Mediterranean, I could look out and I could see the coastline from Tel Aviv up to Haifa because we were in a Royal Jordanian airplane that couldn't fly over Israeli airspace. Mm -hmm. So we flew up over Lebanon and back down to Amman, Jordan. And when I saw the coastline and saw Haifa, I sat there and tears came down my eyes. I'm home. Oh, I'm home. Oh, and uh, so that's why I loved well, you went with me. You I know how did. much I love Israel. Yes, and it was easy to fall in love. So easy. And that's a gift that you've given each of us kids and a handful of our spouses is the opportunity to go on that tour with you to Israel. And I remember going through and knowing how much you loved it and watching for those things to, to fall in love with. And... Uh, it was an amazing experience up and down Israel and all the different sights and experiences and smells and foods and everything. And I remember getting on the bus and driving back from what Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to fly out. And I had those same tears when we were able to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and and sing church hymns that that made it real and walk the paths around Jerusalem and sing, I walk today where Jesus walked. You can't help but become immersed in the reality. And it was powerful and moving and life-changing. And I loved it and I'm so grateful that that you did that, that you followed an impossible dream and were ready for the opportunities when they showed up. There are a handful of sayings that you live by. I want to talk about a couple of them at least. One of them is any landing you can walk away from is a good one. And if you can reuse the plane, then it's great. <laughs> That means that as a pilot, I always was striving to make the best landings. To make, we call them greasers. Mm -hmm. And, well, 
partly to impress the passengers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but pro but partly to live up to my own expectations. I would go out and I'd practice for hours. Yeah. Well, when I first learned how to fly, I was flying in Fresno and they had that Thule fog. And while I was still a student, the Thule fog was enough that I was not able to leave the pattern. So I was just flying landings is all I was doing because that's as far away from the airport as I could get. Mm -hmm. And so I had 20 hours of landings, different types of landings, mm -hmm. before I was ever permitted to go out and fly when the fog let up. Right. Landings I had nailed. You give me the airplane and I'll grease it on. Yeah. Because I had practiced all that. In fact, I would practice after watching Bob Hoover, who was my hero, at the air shows from 1966 on to the time he passed away a year ago, October. I took that airplane while I was learning and I would come down and I would touch it down on the left wheel and roll on the left wheel. Then I'd raise it up and set it down on the right wheel and then level off and fly around. I had those kind of landings that Bob was doing. I had those nailed. Well, you know the story of my aerobatic flying. Mm -hmm. I went out. I went and got the aerobatic manual, envisioned what it was saying. Then I would go out and get in an airplane and try to do what I had envisioned. And most of the time I could do it. <laughs> and there were times if I didn't have a cast iron stomach, I'd have scared myself. <laughs> I would go up to, to 4,000 feet. So if I made a mistake, uh, I'd have plenty of room to overcome it. Oh my goodness. And there was one time... I lost the plane completely because I was looking out and I was seeing earth, sky, dirt, air. Oh, and it was, my goodness. And so I thought, okay, Thompson, just take your hands off. This plane is built to fly. So as soon as it stops its tumbling and starts to dive, then take over and fly it again. So I just sat back, took my hands off the controls, and it took, uh, oh, probably a few seconds after the plane tumbled started to dive and went, started to fly. I took over and flew it back up. And that's the way I taught myself aerobatics because I couldn't afford. Yeah, that's amazing. There was one maneuver I couldn't do, which was a, I couldn't do a snap roll. I couldn't envision a snap roll mm. because you're having to cross controls and do things that you don't normally do. And finally, a good friend of mine, Floyd Ritchie, we were out flying his airplane. No, I wasn't flying the plane I was flying. It was an aerobatic airplane. And I said, show me how to do a snap roll. Because he was an old uh, Air Force pilot. Yeah. And so he showed me how to do an air snap roll. I did a snap roll. Great. Got it dialed. <laughs> I love that. I love that principle of any landing you can walk away from yeah. is a good one. Because I think it, it also is illustrated several times in life, just living. Anything that we try to accomplish, if we don't crash and burn and end it. We can have some rough landings. We can have some rough landings and get back up and keep moving. Because so many times I think people are afraid to fail. They're, so they're afraid to try. They'll hold themselves back from 
trying something new because of the fear of failure. But I think adopting this as a philosophy that it's okay if you fail. It's, if, it's okay if you come up short because you can still walk away from it. And you might even surprise yourself and be able to use the plane again. <laughs> the doctor that told me that I was through running, I went back to him after I had come back from Athens in the marathon. Right. And I showed him my medal. Yeah. And he said, that is the most stupid. He lit into me and read me the riot act for doing something stupid. And so as we walked out of his office, my sweetheart said, what are you going to do? I said, change your doctors. Right? Because <laughs> running did more for my aches because I haven't walked a step in 75 years that hasn't hurt. Right. But, but deal with it. And so go get another doctor and, yeah. and go on. Yeah, definitely. The other saying that I really like is the one that you've said you want as the subtitle of your book of your life. What's that quote? The subtitle? Maybe it's the title. The title well, of the, the title book of my is... journal is Wow, What a Ride. Yeah, because it comes from that quote. You want the whole quote? Yes, I want the whole quote. So this is the title. Well, this is the inspiration for the title of your book. And this life is my book. forward right after my yes, title. Yes, yes. And it? this is by Peter Sage. He said, Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in sideways, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, proclaiming, wow, what a ride. That is exciting and inspiring and motivating to me. I want to fill my life with happy, joyful, meaningful things and achieve great things because that is what life is about to me. It's, it's not about running away from fears, even though I still do sometimes. It's about shifting fear to determination, shifting impossibility to, I'm gonna do it anyway. And so I love that quote, and I love that that's how you have lived your life. Of course, that has created some strain on your mother. <laughs> My mother doesn't know half. <laughs> and when she found out some of it, she said, I don't want to know anymore. <laughs> well, what I would do is the way my hardcore journals start, my hard copy journals, hardcore, <laughs> my journal started was I was working for the church and I was traveling over a 600 mile area from Humboldt State on the north to Bakersfield on the south. And I, as I would go out and visit with those teachers, after I would leave, I would dictate my correspondence back to them. And then I would record vignettes for my journal on my tape recorder. The secretary came back in one time embarrassed and she said, I'm sorry, Dr. Thompson, I did, forgot to turn the tape recorder off after that last letter. And you were starting to talk about one of your rodeo clown experiences. I couldn't help but she said, I'm sorry. I said, it's okay. She said, <laughs> if you let me listen to those, I'll transcribe them for you. 
So she started my hard copy journal. So since then, I've typed it and printed it out for my journal. Yeah. So over the years, I've developed 14 volumes, 805 vignettes. Crazy. And during the pandemic, I went back and reread it and was able to go in and say, oh, here's a postscript on that one. Yeah. Because I talked to this guy back in Idaho, and he wasn't in the story <laughs> like I had him. So I had to eliminate him from the story. Yeah. And in some cases, add somebody to a story yeah. that I hadn't included. As I went back through, I would reread my whole life. I relived my life several times, and I love reading about my life. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, I, I would go back and read a story that I had memorized yeah. and love it because... you. I would think, you've got to be kidding. You really did that. <laughs> I've had people say, oh, you need to you need to publish that. And what did you say about Nobody it? Nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. I said, if I hadn't lived it, I wouldn't have believed it. I love it. And people are going to believe it because we are going to get it published. <laughs> and it is going to be entertaining. And Zach is going to make it into a movie someday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, there is one story that one of my brothers requested that you tell. And it's in line with this where grandma didn't know that you were in the newspaper. <laughs> so tell us the story about the Teton okay. climbing story. <laughs> I was on the Boy Scout camp staff for years at Fraser Mountain Camp of the Tetons. Uh, from the time I was 15 years old up through I was an adult and became program director. And my Aunt Mary, who lived in Moody out by Sugar City, she took the Post Register, which was an Idaho Falls paper. And Idaho Falls is about 30 minutes to the south. And some of the Rexburg people subscribed to the Post Register. And one time, my Aunt Mary brought a copy of the paper to my mother and showed her, she said, is this Dean? And my mother brought that to me and showed me. She said, is this you? Well, what the picture is, it shows this climber hanging on a rope over a, a thousand foot drop coming over the cliff of the Teton Peaks. And it says, unidentified mountain climber. And my mother said, is that you? I said, do you think I would do something like that? <laughs> I never admitted to the time she passed who that was. Yeah. In fact, I still haven't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, that does it. <laughs> oh, I could go on for hours. This podcast could be forever long. So what we're going to have to do is do this again. I want to let you have the last word. What message do you want to give the listeners to uplift their day, to help them feel like they have more strength, more joy, more hope to move forward in their lives? Well, that's a challenge. But each of us has been placed here on this earth for a purpose. And as you work towards that purpose... You are the one who decides how you're going to respond to events. There's no reason in the world that you should ever say, the devil made me do it, 
or you made me angry. One person the other day said, I'm sorry if I offended you. And I said, you don't have the capability to offend me because I choose when I'm going to be offended. And one thing I tried to teach our children is that after an event, you choose whether you're going to be happy, angry, sad, and buy the responsibility of those feelings because you chose those feelings. So what I would suggest is that all of you are in charge of your earthly vehicle. You are in charge of who you are and you determine how you're going to respond. Even all hell's falling around you, you can still be happy because you don't have to indulge yourself in the chaos step back and think, wow, that's crazy. That's, that's tragedy. I'm sure glad I'm not feeling, sure glad I'm chosen. And of course, you'll have emotions about losing loved ones, about tragedy. But you choose. And you live your life the way you want to. You follow Tiffany's directions, this life above the line. And you determine how you're going to live your life. Because you make the choices and no one can make you make your choices any one way or the other. They can influence them, but you have the final say. Thank you. I love you. Love you too. Thanks for being on my show with me. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you for being with me. Remember to share this episode with three people who you feel could use it today don't want to wait for next week for new insights and wisdom? Go to www.tiffanygarvin.com slash emotional healing for a free guide to help you begin healing the emotional wounds that are holding you back. Again, the link is tiffanygarvin.com slash emotional healing. It will be in the show notes as well. I believe in you. See you next week.